that little brief introduction, we are going to begin a new book of the Bible this morning, the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, uh, always a good thing to bring your own Bible to church, go ahead and pull them out at this time and uh, turn with me to the book of Philippians. If you don't have your own Bible, there should be some Bibles scattered throughout the pew backs in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those NIV translations and turn to the book of Philippians. Uh, if you're having trouble with the book of Philippians on my in my Bible, which is uh, the same as yours, turn to page 951 and you find the little book, but the enormously significant book of Philippians. And so if you don't have a Bible, feel free to to grab one of those. And uh, if you don't have access to either of those, try to find uh, somebody who has a Bible because we're going to be reading through the book of Philippians this morning and uh, you will need your Bible as the text won't be on the screen. So uh, Philippians is where we're going to be. We're beginning a new sermon series called The Fight for Joy. The Fight for Joy. And that is because oftentimes in the Christian life, we have to fight for our joy. It doesn't come naturally sometimes. It doesn't come easily sometimes. In fact, I would venture to say that all of us, uh, not just from time to time, but almost every day of our lives, are in a struggle to fight for true joy. So that's where we're going to be. We're going to be talking about joy for the next several weeks as we mine the depths of this wonderful little book whose main theme is joy. So I trust that you're there with a Bible in your lap or close to a Bible next to you. Let's pray, and we'll dive right into uh, our opening sermon, the preview of the fight, as we uh, get an introduction to the book of Philippians. So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is eternal, that it is unbreakable, uh, and that it is absolutely true. We thank you that you have given us all sorts of meaningful uh, scriptures to learn and to grow from. And Father, my prayer as we journey into this little book of Philippians, this little letter from the Apostle Paul as he wrote to this little, uh, lovely, but imperfect church, much like ours, uh, many, many years ago, that you would teach us all many things, but in particular, we want to discover and mind the depths of how we can live the joyful Christian life. Father, I confess to you, and uh, for myself, and probably for many people here, that even as Christ followers, we find our joy in other things. We find our joy uh, in possessions, and in people, and in pleasures, and in all sorts of other locations, and oftentimes, my joy, and probably many of the people here, our joy is so contingent upon our circumstances. If life is well, we're joyful, and if life stays then we're less than. But we know that that's not how you intended it to be. And through a relationship, a personal relationship with our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is joy, the source of joy, we can know true joy. And that's what you want for us. And so I pray for this series and for this sermon that you would speak mightily through your word and that you would fill us with true joy that comes from knowing you and pursuing hard after you. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, the source of our joy. And God's people said, amen. So I want to begin with a simple question this morning. And the question is this, where does joy come from? Another way to state the question would be this, where do we find joy? What is the source of true joy? To make it more personal, where do you get your joy from? What makes you joyful? Under what circumstances do you consider yourself to be happy or or joyful would be a better word. What is the source of joy? I think it is an utterly significant question. We find ourselves living in a nation in which uh, is founded on one of the premise is the pursuit of what? Happiness, the pursuit of happiness that is part of 
our very DNA as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a country. But I would argue even more than that, it's a part of our very DNA as human beings. We were made to be joyful, and yet I think all of us, if we were honest, there's something lacking there. There's a, a, a joy that is just hard to get sometimes, and we need help learning where joy comes from. And so I think that's one of the reasons why God gave us this little book of Philippians. There are a lot of things in Philippians, and we're going to go through it over the next several weeks. It, it touches on many things, but I think the overarching theme is that of joy. So where do we get joy from? Well, before we discover just a little bit of that answer this morning in our overview, I've entitled this sermon Preview of the Fight, because we're going to get a preview, an overview of the book of Philippians, and then we're going to dive into it headfirst next Sunday. But this book tells us where joy comes from, at least in part. But where do we oftentimes pursue joy? Where does our world, the world, our culture, uh, the things around us, where, where does the world tell us that joy is from? Oftentimes in our experiences, this is where we pursue joy. Pastor Mark Driscoll, uh, who has a church up in Seattle, suggests that the world points us to four places that are uh, not really true places where we find joy. He, he says, first of all, we look for joy in processes. He says we look for them in possessions, in places, and in people. Let's start with the first. Sometimes you and I look for joy through what he calls processes. That is, if you go to a bookstore, if you go online, if you Google how to find joy or steps to joy, what you'll find out is that there are a million articles and a million different books that will give you a process to find joy. That is, steps to finding joy. So you'll find five steps to finding true happiness, seven steps to find a, a joyful life. Or how about, how about this one? I did a little research. I found this one to be interesting. Men's health. If you are a man and you want to find joy, well, then men's help, men's uh, health maybe can help you. I don't know if you see the title there, but 759 Ways to Live the Perfect Life. Now, don't you want to live the perfect life, men in particular? Don't you want to live the perfect life? Well, if you get this article, men's health can tell you the source of true joy. In fact, it has 759 ways to tell you where joy comes from, how to live the perfect life. I don't know about you, but 759 ways, that's a little overwhelming. I don't think I can count that high. Uh, that's a lot of things to remember, right? And then the perfect life, I mean, truly to live the perfect life, seems like it's overshooting a little bit. Interestingly enough, when you look through the Old Testament, just in the Old Testament alone, do you know how many laws or commands are found in the Old Testament? Roughly 613, according to my source. So apparently men's health has a leg up on the Old Testament, on rules, right? 759 ways to find joy. Well, the trouble with processes, and that's, this is just one example, the trouble with processes is that joy doesn't come from a process. Joy comes from a person. So joy is not found in processes. What about possessions? I think the world oftentimes will fool us into thinking that true joy comes from the things that we have. Uh, if you look at advertisements, I don't know uh, how much TV you watch. Of course, there are a lot of commercials. I don't know if you read through magazines, but there are all sorts of advertisements uh, on magazines. The other day, I was driving to Chicago to pick up my family from O'Hare International, and I took the tollway. And I was uh, disappointed to know that there was a wreck, and I was there for two hours. So I had plenty of time to look at the billboards. Plenty of time, as we crawled at two miles an hour. I looked at all of the billboards scattered throughout the tollway. And all of the billboards, well, not all of them, but, but many of them were selling joy. 
There were people who were smiling, and when you look at smiling ads, the subtle, or maybe not so subtle, implication is that if you buy our stuff, you'll be happy, right? If you have this possession, if you buy our junk, well, then you're going to be happy. That's where joy is found. So let me give you a quick example. This is an old one, but I found it to be interesting. What about this, this one? Have a Coke and a smile. Have a Coke and a smile. I think this was several years ago, given the hat that this young woman is wearing. Uh, a little bit probably dated, but have a Coke and a smile. Okay, fair enough. If I get a Coke, I'll have a smile on my face because it tastes good. I like Coke. Coke gives me a smile. I like Coke. But what really got me was this bottom line. What does it say? Coke adds life. So it's not just a Coke. It's not just a fuzzy thing to kind of give you a refreshment on a warm summer day like today. But no, if you have a Coke, you will find life. True meaning, joy. What about this next one? It's a jewelry ad. Now, I'm not much for jewelry, but it's because I'm a guy, I think. But um, what about this one? Oftentimes, in, if you look up jewelry ads, some of them uh, are more modern, and the, and the model's just like posing and she's not happy, but several of them you'll find are, are like this, this lady. She's smiling, she's grinning, and, and she's kind of covering up her smile so she can show off the bling on her fingers. Look at all that jewelry, right? And then look at the jewelry uh, on her arms. That is a lot of, well, I don't know if it's diamonds, but it's a lot, of, a lot of jewelry, right? And this is from Harry Winston. Now, I don't know if you can see this because it's very small, but what caught me again was, was the very small tag. I don't know if you see it here at the very bottom, but it says, live the moment. Live the moment. Now, I think what they're selling you is an experience. It's, it's a possession that leads to an experience. If you get these diamonds, the moment that your husband, the moment that, that your boyfriend slips that ring on your finger, or the moment that he slips that bracelet on your arm, oh, you just, you live the moment. Now, you may live the moment, but he may die over the moment when he sees the credit card bill, right? He may die over that moment of giving you this jewelry. Uh, You know, the problem with possessions is that we always want more. We always want more. Joy is not found in a process, and it's not found in a possession. What about places? What about places? Is joy found in going a lot of places? What about restaurants? How many of you like to eat out? You can be honest. Do you like to eat out? Okay, I'll admit it. I love to eat out. I enjoy not having to cook, even though I don't do most of the cooking, but I do the cleaning, by the way. So I like to eat out because I don't have to clean, right? So I, I, like, to, I like to eat out. Um, and I really enjoy just somebody else doing the work. Maybe I'm lazy. And I like the taste of foods. It's just a good experience. So for me, oh, I, I could fall into this one. If I just go to a, 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 a good restaurant, maybe that's where joy is found. And I, I ran across this magazine. This is a Chicago magazine. Chicago's 50 Best Sandwiches. What do you think about that one? Does that look pretty good? It looks pretty decent to me. The cheese is melting and it's mixing together and I don't even know what that is, but it looks pretty tasty, you know. Um, apparently, that's one of Chicago's 50 best sandwiches. And uh, maybe restaurants will give us joy. I'm not sure if eating all of that will really give you joy. It may give you indigestion, but uh, uh, it probably won't give you joy. You know, the problem with uh, certain places is that, like restaurants, you go there, but then you have to leave. And the food is gone, one way or another. What about a vacation? Will that really give you joy going on a, on a vacation? I like vacations. I really enjoy 
vacations. I found this book, and it's entitled The 100 Best Vacations, but it's not just entitled The 100 Best Vacations. That's, that's good enough. But what, what is this book selling you about vacations? What will it really do? It will what? To enrich your life. The best 100 vacations to enrich your life. That is, if you go on these 100 vacations, boy, you're going to find joy. It will give you life. And the trouble with uh, vacations, of course, is that they end and you have to go back home, right? So joy, I don't think, is found in processes or possessions or places. But what about people? Is joy found in people? Well, to some degree, I think we're going to see that joy is found in people. But I would argue that ultimately the source of true joy is not found in other people aside from one person, We'll talk about that later. So excluding that one person, is true joy found in a relationship, maybe in a spouse or a dating relationship? Is that where joy is found? I think if you read through the uh, relationship department in in a bookstore, you'll find books like this. Finding the right one for you. Finding the right one for you. Secrets to finding your what? Perfect mate. And so I think a lot of people put stock in finding true joy, happiness, contentment in relationships, in a boyfriend, in a girlfriend, in a dating relationship, in a spouse. Um, And I don't mean to be uh, cynical. I can say this because I don't think my wife is here. But uh, (laughs) finding the right one for you, secrets to recognizing your perfect mate. Is there such a thing as a perfect mate? And the answer, church, is what? No. And the reason is because there's no perfect person that has ever lived aside from the man Jesus Christ. And it is in a relationship with him that true joy is found. So we've seen four ways that I think our culture and and the world tells us where we should find joy. But what about the Bible? What does God have to say about the subject of joy? A lot of things. But in particular, God has chosen to write through a man, Paul, to this little church in Philippi, and the theme of this book is joy, and I think we're going to find an answer to our question, at least in part, to where does joy come from? We're going to begin a new series called The Fight for Joy, and today we're just going to get a preview, an overview of the book of Philippians to to get a big picture, but I think as we do that, we're going to try to answer this question that we began with. Where does joy come from? Well, in part, I'm going to give you three things where joy comes from, from the book of Philippians. And we'll see those fleshed out over the next several weeks as we work through the book of Philippians. Where does joy come from? Well, let's begin doing a couple things. First of all, I want to see the setting of the book. I want us to see the setting of the book. So what I think we oftentimes can do, we can just read our Bible and we just read it, and we don't put ourselves in the situation. We don't understand that these were real people in real times with real problems, with real circumstances, with real marriages that were on the rocks, and with real threats to their health and uh, to their prosperity, and with real relational problems, maybe with their kids. These were real people in real times, and and as one of my favorite pastors says down in Dallas, he says, you know, you kind of have to smell it. You need to read the Bible so that you can smell what's going on. And so this is my attempt for us to do that as we look at the setting. Uh, One author, maybe you've heard of him, his name is Ray Ortland. Ray Ortland has has written a little article, and it's called The Pastor is Worshipper. But in that little article, he gives what I think is a a made-up, and yet based on facts, descriptive account of what it would have been like 
So I want us to imagine just briefly uh, going back some 2,000 plus years ago to this uh, Macedonian hustle and bustle significant city and this small group of of Christians like ourselves, a small group of Christians gathered together. What was it like for them to hear this book, this letter, it was a letter, this letter read to them? What would it have been like? Well, we're going to try to do that today. I'm going to read uh, just a, sh- a fairly short expert excerpt of, of this article. And let's imagine in our mind's eye what it must have been like to hear this book for the first time. So I'm going to read what he writes and imagine with me in your minds. It is Sunday in that great Macedonian city of Philippi, sometime in the year A.D. 62. During the previous week, Epaphroditus has returned from visiting Paul, who is imprisoned under house arrest in Rome with this letter from the apostle in hand. The buzz has gone around the Christian network in the, in the city of Philippi, and everyone is excited to hear the letter read aloud when the church gathers for worship that Sunday. Of course, they meet in Lydia's house. They meet in Lydia's home this Sunday because, well, she's the wealthiest, and she has the most space. They are seated together throughout her inner courtyard, and it looked probably something like this. Of course, Euodia is there, and the woman named Syntyche is also there, but they're not sitting together quite yet. This is a lovely but imperfect church. As the believers gather, exchanges of greetings and small talk draw one another together in this small circle of fellowship. Eventually, an elder stands and welcomes them all and prays and leads them in a hymn. Then he asks Epaphroditus, to step forward and to join them at the front. Everyone claps and cheers. They receive him with joy in the Lord. After giving a brief account of his journey and of Paul and of his situation, Epaphroditus relays Paul's greeting and formally presents the letter to the elder of the church. He resumes his seat, and the presiding elder then reads aloud Paul's letter. Servants of Christ Jesus, To all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you, our God, from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending or confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. 
It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Jesus Christ will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will, have, they will be destroyed, but you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Second chapter. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of, and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, val value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at, at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink, offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, and that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor, people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting for the church, <clears throat> as for legalistic high, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteous, that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all of this, or have already been made perfect, 
But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Christ Jesus, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and as I asked you, ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I'm in, I am in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. As the letter is read, everyone is wrapped in attention, and the Holy Spirit is speaking to their hearts. They start to change, at least a little bit, under the ministry of this letter. They're encouraged to hear that even prison can't stop the advancement of the gospel. They're challenged by Paul's single-minded purpose of living for Christ and his call for them to live worthy of that gospel too. An older, wealthy man is convicted on the spot of his pride and of his selfishness as he interacts with the other poor Christians in the church. As he hears of Christ's example of selfless humility, one woman and then another The two women named in the book openly repent of causing division through gossip and complaint. A young woman begins to open up crying. She she shares her struggle with anxieties and fear and worry. She had just become a Christian and she was concerned that her family might disown her. And so she asks that the church pray, as Paul told them to, that God's peace would guard her heart and her mind. There's a middle-aged Jewish man He's been coming to the church for a few weeks, and he's interested. He's not a Christ follower. And as he listens to this letter, he decides to place his faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. As he hears Paul's word from the letter echo, but whatever I had to gain, all of this I count as loss for the sake of Christ. And in that moment, as people are crying, rejoicing, sharing, a hush settles over that courtyard, a solemn joy as the Spirit imparts a wonderful sense of the glory of Jesus Christ. They are worshiping in that moment. Paul knew that it would happen. Paul knew that his letter would create joyful worship. He meant it to happen. He wanted to share in it. Now Paul is back in Rome as he's sitting there in his prison cell under house arrest on that same Sunday awaiting his chance to appeal Caesar with acquittal and release on the one hand or execution awaiting on the other. He longs for this church. He figures that Epaphroditus, as he sent him on his way, surely was in the city of Philippi by now. He goes to that small city and to that small church in his memory there and he meets his dear Philippian friends in his heart and in his mind. He, he had founded the church some 10 years ago, and yet he had only seen them once after that. He recalls the fateful day as he was thrilled to see Epaphroditus from that church walk through his prison door there with a great financial gift from the church, a love offering from the church. Yet when he had gotten sick, he knew it was time to send the man home. He shuts his eyes, and he reminisces about his memories of this church, their faces, The elders, the deacons, the members, the children pass before his mind's eye. He thinks of Lydia, oh wealthy Lydia, the wealthy merchant woman whose family had been his first converts in that city. He thinks of the demon-possessed girl, the formerly demon-possessed girl whom he set free both spiritually and physically at the power and the name of Christ and how she had been set free and become a part of that church. 
He thinks of the Roman jailer. He thinks of the fateful night when he uh, was singing joyful hymns and he was about to escape and yet the Roman jailer has his sword drawn and he, he remembers that moment, that instance when this jailer was about to thrust the sword into his chest and Paul stopped him, shared the gospel with him and he and his whole household were saved and were baptized. He knew they were relatively healthy He didn't really need to correct them morally or doctrinally. No, the letter in Epaphroditus' hands was warm, was encouraging. His memories make him long for them, and so he begins to pray for them. And he's overwhelmed by the fact that he, one who used to oppose the gospel, a blasphemer, a prosecutor, one who killed Christians like the one he is now writing to, that he had the privilege of encouraging them in the gospel. His humility, his life in which he outpoured for the sake of this church took its rightful place of happy authority at the center of his soul. There, that same Lord's Day, in prison, Paul is praying joyfully, and he too is worshiping. You know, that might have been what it was like, and that may have been what happened when this letter was read aloud. So, as we wrap up, What is this letter all about? Well, I think you have probably figured it out by now. The overwhelming theme of this book, this little letter, is joy. I think the theme of this book is how to live the joyful Christian life. In fact, when you look and read through the book, there are some 18 appearances of words related to joy. Joy, rejoice, glad, I glory. All of these words total 18 together. And if you compare them to some of his other writings, they far outweigh the number of references in those books. Galatians, two times. Colossians, two times. Ephesians, none. First Thessalonians, six times. And yet here in this little letter, Paul wants us to know where joy comes from for a Christian. And so let me end with this. Are you joyful? Do you lack joy? Are you like me oftentimes as I think about it? Is your joy contingent upon the circumstances in life? Or can you, like Paul, Say, rejoice in the Lord always. Can, can you sit in a Roman prison cell knowing that you may die that day and write a letter like this and encourage people to have joy in Jesus? Can you say like Paul, hey, to live is Christ and to die is even better because then I'll see him and rejoice. I, these are challenging things for me and for you and yet they're attainable. So are you a joyful Christian? Do you need more joy in your life? Well, then stick with us over the coming weeks as we see how to fight for joy. Let's pray. Father, we need to know how to fight for joy. Father, we confess to you that there are many idols in our hearts, that there are many processes and possessions, there are people and there are places and all sorts of things that take precedent in our hearts, that we, if we were honest, think can give us joy. And yet through your word, as we will see in the upcoming weeks, there is really joy in one person alone. And that's in Jesus Christ. In an intimate, loving, faithful, discipled following of him. As one author said, the whole of Christian living is simply a matter of that relationship with the living Lord in an atmosphere of his presence and of his all-enabling grace. And so we pray, Jesus, that that would be our heart's desire. And even if it's not, that you would make it so, so that in relating to you, 
we could find joy in all circumstances. We need your help to do this. We want to shine like lights in the world, as Paul has told this little church. And we want to rejoice that we are citizens, not of this world, but in the world to come. And so help us. Give us grace, we pray, in the name of Jesus and God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand to do this. I'm going to read this as a closing blessing to you. Uh, it's a refrain that we'll see over and over again. So let's stand. Philippians 4.4 4 says this, and we'll send you out on this Father's Day in this way. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I will say, rejoice. See you next week.